Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have here with us again, Ken Woodward. We only got through half of Ken's book. No, we got through one-third of Ken's book in the, in the last episode, but there was so much here, I wanted to bring him back for another one. Thank you for joining us again, Ken. Oh, my pleasure. So let me just give the book again. Getting Religion, Faith, Culture, and Politics from the Age of Eisenhower to the Era of Obama. And you said you could bring it all the way up to the, uh, to the era of Trump as, as well, if you, if, you, if you wanted to. But, you know, one thing you, you mentioned, Ken, that may bear upon after where the book ended, you said you've got a piece coming out in a few months that you think is is a significant statement beyond the book and that you mentioned off the air that you might want to share that some of those ideas with people do you want to start with that well i will but i'm not going to uh, jump on my own um essay in getting getting religion really shows in my mind how significant religion was in relation to culture and politics in the second half of the 20th century um you could say that it was a third great awakening, but not like the first two, which were uh, basically uh, Protestant phenomena. Um, and the odd thing is that since the turn of this century and the new millennium, um, in my judgment, religion has ceased to be, to be an important factor um, and starting startling so. Um, Right now, uh, for example, there are no religious voices that, that transcend the din of what's going out on the streets in two blocks from, from where I'm sitting. Um, there just aren't the commanding figures, uh, and if there were, would, would anybody pay attention to them? So this, the contrast is striking. On the other hand, what we get is... Uh, we continue to have journalists and academics talk uh, about the, the religion factor in American politics. And I'm saying uh, in this essay, without going into it, that religion is not an important factor uh, in American politics. Um, and in presidential politics, it never has been 
except when the first two Catholics ran, and uh, and then Jimmy Carter, without going into detail. Carter, not because he was the, the, maybe the most religious president we had, but because the reaction to his um, winning uh, the South and awakening uh, uh, a conservative uh, Protestant uh, vote there uh, was the uh, creation of the religious right, which in my judgment is pretty much gone by now. And that particularly, and I'm only going to mention this, but it's at the heart of what I have to uh, say, uh, is that uh, the category of the white evangelical vote is spurious, and it masks what is really going on politically and culturally. So um, I, I take some time to what I think um, deconstruct or explode uh, or pull apart what I think is a bogus category. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, overall, Ken, are, are you happy with the direction of religion in the United States since, since you were young? I mean, you, you mentioned a moment ago how there are really no authoritative religious voices who rise above the din, I think, as you, as you accurately put it. And I compare that to, to what you talk about in the book with Billy Graham, for instance, in the 1960s. What, what, did, what, did Billy, what was the status of Billy Graham in, in 1969? You're sort of reading my brain because I've been talking to his, one of his biographers, uh, historian Grant Wacker at Duke, about this because I'm thinking of writing an essay called What Would Billy Do If Trump Had Asked If You're Around in Corpus Mentis and and the current president asked him to speak to the nation with respect to the the virus and uh, maybe now what's going on. Um, and I'm speculating about that. Yeah, I, look, you, we're all warned that that uh, we can put a certain glow on the on the past. And in getting religion, I look at growing up Catholic from a child's perspective. And and the child's perspective would be very different from the adult perspective. I became a civil rights reporter before I went to Newsweek, and so uh, where I grew up, there were no you know black people around, and we didn't think about it. That was the other part of town. So there's always aspects of the past that you feel are well past this, well stay in the past. Okay, with respect to Billy Graham. Um, Billy Graham, how can I say, he, he epitomized what I, what I describe in the book as uh, entrepreneurial religion uh, in that he created his own institution. Um, you know, it's the world's what, largest floating crap game in a way, if you might want to say, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, uh, because that's the way they work. There aren't strong associational ties in evangelical religion. Um, there are no central authorities. He was it, and he did by virtue of symbol. Um, the early Billy Graham was a fundamentalist. The early Billy Graham would probably be telling us that we're being visited uh, with a plague because of our sins, 
Billy Graham would talk about, um, you know, the 10 plagues and and uh, things like that. I Time magazine was um, uh, considered him almost their property, and they, they pushed him through Life magazine and published his essays there and put him on the cover of Time. We never did. Uh, I came into Newsweek in 64. It was, oh, I have it. I have it in my drawer here, but uh, I did Billy as a cover story, and I did it just before the Nixon administration produced Honor America Day on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, if you'll remember that. And Billy was the major speaker. Bishop Fulton J. Sheehan was the Catholic, and Rabbi, oh, I've forgotten his name, from the American Jewish Committee, he had the interreligious dialogue uh, portfolio. He spoke, uh, Mark Tannenbaum. Um, it was really uh, orchestrated by Chuck Colson from inside the Nixon White House and uh, Billy. Uh, and this was happening. And so I, at the same time, I read Robert Bella's essay on the civil religion. It had just come out, and uh, Mark and uh, I saw him as a manifestation of it, an orchestrator of an American civil religion by standing on the iconic steps. That was part of the religion. It was a, uh, it was a very useful concept that a man in, in blue Baptist threads would be the, uh, the, the band leader, the orchestrator of, of this civil religion. And, uh, of course, you know, there were, uh, well, maybe you don't, but there were protesters of Vietnam, uh, pushed to the sidelines and so forth. So that was another Billy Graham, and then the, the um, and I got to know him then, and I tell in my book my stories of being with him and how, and that's a whole separate story. But in terms of his career, he he didn't realize what uh, what he was doing in aiding and abetting Nixon, and it took him a long time. In fact, he was more concerned about Nixon's language when it came out in the Watergate uh, um, uh, investigation. Um, but uh, the la- the later Billy washed his hands of politics, even wa- even stepped back from that civil religious role that he had played, and it happened because he went to Eastern Europe and he saw there the Christians under persecution, communist persecution, were more um, I don't know, impressed him more than the American Christians back at home. So that was, uh, even then he stumbled when he went to Russia. And uh, so it took him a long time to learn that he should change his, his, his outlook. But he did. And here is a man who was raised a fundamentalist Presbyterian in the South, who secretly um, waged, uh, created a... a um, a uh, almost successful orchestration of the Protestant media at the last minute, a Protestant uh, clergy against Kennedy because a Catholic couldn't be, shouldn't be president of a Protestant country that God had set aside for the um, for the people of the Reformation. That man came to admire Pope John Paul II. He was in Poland. It was to have tea with the Archbishop, or the Cardinal Archbishop of Krakow. The date was set, but then he got a note saying that uh, Cardinal had to go to Rome to elect a new pope. And, uh, of course, he never came back uh, until a couple of years later because he himself was elected. 
Billy looked up at him. I know because I called him. I said, Billy, what do you make of the new Pope? And he said, I was watching on television. He came out on that balcony and he said, Christ, Christ is the answer. And he said, he's an evangelist. <laughs> and I thought it takes one to know one. And that, whatever else he was, and he was many things, that's what he was. So Billy ends up, the Billy Graham administration ends up, uh, Billy Graham's uh, Evangelistic Association is the only, uh, the head of that is uh, Billy himself, but he couldn't make it, uh, invited to, um, everybody else was the head of a church, except for the uh, representative of the Billy Graham Association at the funeral of John Paul II. And he said, he said to me in an interview, I think uh, this pope is the religious leader of the West. That was an amazing statement. He wanted to be that. And uh, so we had a different and a more humble man at the end, a man who would uh, never do, never do what his son is doing with respect to the president of the United States today. You know, uh, another couple of characters, I remember them, my, my mother loved them. My mother grew up. Catholic, Catholic schools all her life, and then came to hate the Catholic Church um, because I think she felt the nuns were so mean to her in school. But th it, a couple of figures who were very prominent in the anti-war movement, the Berrigan brothers. My mother talked about how much she loved the Berrigan brothers. Who were the Berrigan brothers? Why were they so big? And the third question would be, why don't we have any major, why don't we have any major religious figures who are out front of a lot of the social movements taking place today. So for, first, the Berrigans. Well, that second question is a big one. I have to think about that. But the Berrigans, I remember Mary Gordon, the novelist, saying, she's much younger, she said, we all grew up uh, falling in love with Daniel Berrigan. You know, he was the, um, the clerical imp, right? He went, he was supposed to go to jail and he, he he disappeared, and uh, the police had to chase him all over the place, and uh, and um, made made the cover of Time magazine. He would have made the cover of Newsweek if uh, they hadn't done it the week before. Um, the Berrigans were two uh, German Irish, uh, raised a conservative family. About what they had. he had a couple of other brothers, I guess, and sisters, and. Um, and the older brother had served in the military and was a Josephite priest, and he turned against the war. He thought the war in Vietnam was immoral and so on. And he convinced Daniel Berrigan to join him, too. And there were a lot of Catholics who, like your mother, thrilled to see um, the FBI, you know, chasing two uh, two Catholic priests. And uh, they were they were fought. They were hosting meetings to have young people burn their draft cards. I mean, they, they were very involved. They were very activist, very involved. Well, they were very active. They were they were part of something that was called uh, clergy and laymen concerned uh, about Vietnam. Richard John Newhouse was an organizer of it. Uh, a couple of people at Union Theological Seminary uh, and and the Berrigans. Uh, well, there were a couple of others as well. Uh, but the story that I talk about in the book uh, was how the Berrigans separated themselves from from the clergy and laymen concerned uh, by sort of sacramentalizing their their protests, pouring blood on um, you know draft draft files. Yeah, there were so many people that were burning their draft clergy, burning their draft cards. They must have had a stack of them at home. Uh, it was a very showy thing to do. If I'm a little cynical, I did become that way. Um, 
Dan Berrigan was a perfect example of what in the previous broadcast I called movement religion, where the movement brings people of uh, all different kinds of religions and no religions at all together, because it's the movement that matters. It's the movement that creates the brotherhood and the sisterhood. And that's the language that was of, um, that was the language of the people who were, who were opposing the, uh, the war in Vietnam. What the Berrigans did was say, um, we're going to take it another step and we're going to do these sort of sacramental acts, pouring blood on uh, you know, nuclear warheads and, and the rest of it. And, and, and the point was that when you I met him, and, and for instance, he was in, when he was in jail earlier, I sent a message in saying, what are you doing? This is early in the game. And I got back the most beautiful piece of prose from him. Well, the reason I got it, and I got it in such a short matter, and I published the whole thing, and it ended up in one of his books, is that he was writing the whole time. He was writing essays. He was writing poetry. And to have a poet as well as a priest, um, you know, on the lamb, if you will. Um, now, uh, if you uh, were at, say, Common Wheel magazine, and you weren't sure that you were a pa- and you weren't a pacifist, and you didn't come out and put your, uh, you know, your neck on the line. Uh, he would, wanted nothing to do with you. At one point, he wouldn't say mass in a church, only the underground church. That is to say, the people of the movement would he say mass for. So there was an enormous amount of arrogance there. And then I was asked to review his biography um, for the Sunday New York Times. And I'm reading the book, and he's how his nan, he doesn't like his father, and there's this, and he loves his mother, and and all it. it was such a sour book, and it was me and my brother against the world, okay, that I got turned off, uh, Mark. I got to tell you, I mean, I, I said to my wife, I said, look, I've. I've considered him along with Abraham Heschel, who was also very much involved in clergy and layman concern, uh, and and Martin Marty uh, for different sets of reasons of, of my sort of religious heroes in this country. But I I, I don't know what to do because if I'm honest about this book, I've got to say how arrogant he comes across and how angry and against the world. And I wrote an essay that way. And that was the end of our relationship. <laughs> and the Times published it. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. No, I stick by it. And I would add a footnote, though. When he came out, uh, after the war was over, he went, to, uh, one of the things he did, because remember, he was a um, disciple of Dorothy Day, and Dorothy Day didn't follow him on this. And Thomas Merton gave him a hard time. Um, the letters will will show that. Uh, but, but uh he went to work clearing out the bedpans of uh, terminally ill cancer patients in some hospital run by nuns. Now, that's the other side of the Dorothy Day influence there. Well, he, he, at, le- at least here, he walked the walk. Yeah, absolutely. So I, you know, um, I, it's it's the man after the Vietnam War that I admire more than the public man on the lam during the war. You talk at, at one point about what you call, quote, the feminization of religion. What do you mean by that? Well, I got a, a lot of heat um, on that. I don't treat feminist theology um, well there. I think it's circuitous, meant to leave men out. And uh, uh, whether it was Rosemary Radford Ruther or 
other worthies. That's what they. That's what they did. They they um, subjected the uh, biblical text to a uh, hermeneutics of suspicion. Then they applied a hermeneutics of retrieval, which was to uncover what the patriarchal um, writers of the Bible and their kinfolk uh, after biblical era what they suppressed about women, and then they applied it to what they called women church. Ruther's, um, she was mainly the one who, who organized that concept. So if it left me out of the circle, uh, I didn't see where I had to particularly respect it since I wasn't supposed to be in there in the first place. So it didn't speak to me. Uh, it also didn't convince me. Um, but what ha- what uh, my argument was, that I made this argument in Commonwealth Magazine as well as in that book, but which was that when, that it's a Catholic Church is a woman's world. It's not a men's world. It's not the people in the hierarchy. When you're growing up Catholic, uh, like your mother, I had wonderful nuns. I have wonderful memories of them. It was a woman's world. And when you go into church, even today, there's more women in the Catholic Church or the uh, or or certainly the Protestant churches. It's almost uh, two to one. When you're in a Catholic school, it's not Father So and So who influences you. It's Sister So and So. It's typical of anybody. It's the teachers you have, not the principal. So the if you walk into a Catholic church, I, I, um, what do you see? You you it's well, it's Holy Mother of the Church, right? And uh, and you see, you know, the Virgin is there, sometimes more prominent than the than uh, the one crucifix over the over the over the uh, altar. So uh, you are raised uh, by more by uh, pious mothers than you are by pious fathers. I'm talking about back in the day. The father went out, and, and it was a plus if the father was religious because he wasn't expected to be as religious as the mother. The typical example, I mean, it's exaggerated, is, is uh, Joe and Rose Kennedy. She's the pious one. He's out whoring, actually. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's especially those early years as a child, if, if, you, if you have nuns, and, um, and it's a woman's world. I went to a, a Jesuit high school, and then it suddenly was an all-male world. It was an interesting contrast. So, yeah, I think that the, the, the women, back through history all the way to the early church, it was the women more than the men who, who, um, who uh, kept the church going. Um, so um, it's, it's, uh, I had argued then that, that the altar and the pulpit were the last bastion of male presence. Or to quote uh, Bishop Bill Willimon of the Methodist Church, he said, when I... When I um, He's a good friend of Stanley Hauerwas is at Duke. And he said, uh, I, when I got ordained, I never realized I'd, I'd be spending every five days out of the week with, with women. The men were off in those days working, and the women were running the churches. They ran the parachurches, the uh, things. They, they, ran the, uh, they ran the congregation. Um, so it was a woman's world, and you see it particularly in African-American communities where where um, the black Muslims have long taunted the the, uh, the black uh, Christian kids. You know, you got you got a mama's religion. Well, we got a male religion. That did not sit well, uh, Mark, with people who saw well. Who, who's the who's who's ordained? You see, that's and I'm saying that's not where you looked to see where the influence is. You got a, a, a mother who's religious. <clears throat> you're, you're a long way towards being religious when you grow up.
you have a section on on the Catholic colleges, and when I was reading that, you 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 describe very clearly strong examples of the pressure to secularize. And what I was wondering was why were the colleges so eager and so quick to secularize from 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 the sixties through the seventies? Well, that's a long, complicated institutional story, but um, <clears throat> I'll go back to uh, Monsignor John Tracy Ellis uh, sometime, I think, in the late 50s or middle 50s, uh, wrote an essay. He said, where are the Catholic Einsteins? Um, he said, we don't have any, you know, really great, very few, if any, Catholic minds. And he said, I, I think the only way to do it is to, is to have... Um, uh, just a handful of universities, one on the East Coast, one in the Midwest, and one on the, on, the, on the West Coast. And he had a twinkle in his eye when he told me that during an interview because he knew that each one of them being independently you know, owned and run, if you will, um, they were all competing for each other. But, um, yeah, there was, a, there was a lack of – there wasn't any really – there wasn't much in the way of Catholic graduate education at that time. And, um, and, and so, um, and the emphasis was on education, you know, after beginning, after the war. And, um, so they, um, everybody talked about excellence. Hes- Father Hesburgh of Notre Dame talked about excellence. Everybody knew if there was going to be only be three universities, the one in the Midwest would be Notre Dame. And he done it. He did it in, in part by, um, getting a lot of money coming his way and, uh, to the university that is. Um, so they were a ridiculous thing, and and it got to be that the more religious, I I quote several really silly people who ran, who were like vice presidents of, of Catholic colleges and universities. There was one in Chicago who said, "Well, you know, the less Catholic it is, the the better it's going to be." It, there was this 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 revolt. Uh, I never felt it, but um, and quite the opposite. But that's the way they felt. And, um, gee, it's a, it, it, it's a long story. It has to do with hiring. Um, when people got a graduate degree, they had to go to, you know, Princeton or Harvard or, or wherever, Rice, Johns Hopkins, whatever. Um, there was an emphasis on excellence in, in particular disciplines. And when you had small Catholic colleges, Notre Dame was a university of 5,000 students at a law school, but it was really a college. And you had a college field just still does it's mostly undergraduate um you can do things you know that you can't do i mean you can't do it now because everything is a uh, you know everybody's a it's a train track to to a phd and uh, we don't have except in these little small mostly to uh, very conservative catholic colleges you can focus on the great books i would love to do that we had we they still have a program at, at notre dame on the great books in a christian setting so yeah that that's a that's a very long story but they were embarrassed by how not good the, the catholic colleges and universities uh, were and 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 so they moved in that direction and if they were going to get teachers because they've all of a sudden, you had to have a Ph.D. My great professor, Frank O'Malley, refused to get a Ph.D. He called it Ph.D.ism, and he wouldn't have it. He didn't have time. He, he had to teach. So um, those kinds of people are, are rare. And I don't know what – I have no answer to the present chaos in Catholic universities. Uh, last question, Ken. What is your strongest memory 
of Father Newhouse? <laughs> Richard would not like my strongest memory of him because it's 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 ironic, uh, and and it was that when we first met, it was by the phone on on the phone, and we talked off and on for a year on the phone. And finally, we were going to meet. There were two Catholic workers who had been in prison who were being let out, and there was a uh, a party for them in Midtown Manhattan, Francine Duplessis' grave. You remember that name? She wrote a book on uh, Berrigan and the rest, and it was at her father-in-law's uh, uh, lovely apartment on the Upper East Side. And I said, I'll see you there. Well, I walked in, and Richard was not great at cocktail parties. Richard was... And I have this in me, too. Richard wanted to talk to people, okay? <laughs> he wanted to have serious conversations when people were in a celebratory mood. So he is in there, and he has several inter- interlocutors um, he's arguing with, and I even argued with him. And uh, next day I get a phone call. He said, I thought we were supposed to meet. I said, we did. I just didn't introduce myself. I found that we were better off on the phone than we were t- together. He was a little imperious for me. Um, but you know what? He took, and of course, he had this great change. And I knew I knew the liberal, John, Richard John Newhouse. And I think I know why, it, uh, abortion being one of the issues, why he broke with the left and went to the right. And he, he was, a, um, he was a, a journalistic, if you will, genius in creating a magazine that was open to Orthodox Jews and Mormons and the rest. And I think that was really important. But I, we got along better on the phone than we did in person. I don't know why. Uh, so, and I hope that wouldn't hurt him if he's listening uh, somewhere. Um, but I think he understood that too. And he was, um, he was very entrepreneurial in his way. Anybody who starts a magazine has to be. So those are my memories of Richard. All right. Well, the book, again, once more, is Getting Religion, Faith, Culture, and Politics from the Age of Eisenhower to the Era of Obama. Ken, thank you for joining us for this second conversation. Well, thank you. Enjoyed it. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 332 2930.